to remain standing as we continue to worship through the reading of God's word. One of our deacons, Bobby Homeyer, is going to come and share with you this morning. Scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus 32, 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the New International Version. You can find this passage on page 86 in the Pew Bible if you choose to. Exodus 32, 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and go up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his of, the, of his God, Lord, he said. Why should you anger your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Bobby. We do have Kingdom Kids today. Kingdom Kids is a ministry for uh, kiddos who are four years old through second grade. And our Kingdom Kids workers are going to head to the four-year. So I invite you to send your kiddos on. And if they've never participated before, you'll want to accompany them and get them registered for that. And they're going to have a fun time worshiping and learning at their level next door where they can be picked up after the service today. And this is one of those... Weird Texas days where 
is not cold enough to have a heater on and it's not warm enough for the AC to cut on unless we cut it down real low. So I'm, after singing all those songs, I'm sweating, y'all. So I got to get this jacket off. I got to get this jacket off. Take it easy out there. Take it easy. Well, today we're continuing in a series uh, that coincides with our Bible reading plan. And if you're not on that plan, I invite you to, to jump on. Jump on where we're at today. Read today. It's dated uh, for today. You can read and then catch up on the stuff you missed in the past. But we have been walking through this Exodus story for a few weeks now. And we're, we're wrapping it up today. So we're looking at the end of the story of Exodus And if you know that biblical story, you know it begins with God's people living in slavery in Egypt. And they are going through a difficult time. They're crying out to God for help. God hears their cries for help. And God sends to them one of their own, Moses. He raises up Moses for this purpose. Gives Moses the task of bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And while he accomplishes that, they go through some trouble. They're able to make it out of Egypt, cross the sea, and now they're wandering in the desert. They're waiting to enter into what is called the promised land. You probably heard that phrase before. Maybe you didn't know it came from the Bible. Maybe you did. But it does. It comes from this promise that God gave Abraham, which would have been a forefather to Moses and all these descendants of Israel that Moses is leading out of Egypt in the wilderness, in the hopes of one day entering into the promised land. The promised land was a big deal uh, because God's people needed a place to call home so that they could prosper. The promise of God through the covenant of God, which is more than an agreement, uh, but it certainly is not less an agreement than God had with Abraham and his descendants, to put them in a land where they could flourish and they could have a nation that would have descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the grains of sand, Along the, sand, along the seashore. And from that people, God said he's going to bless the entire world. From one man, Abraham, into a nation, and from a nation to bless the entire world. And the scripture says, through one of Abraham's seed. It's the promise, it's the hope that through the Israelites, God would bring, a, bring along a savior into the world. And that is Jesus. And Jesus has that family lineage in his blood. But before they can get to the promised land, before they can become that enormous nation from which Jesus is born, they go through this time of wilderness. And in the wilderness is a time of testing. In all sorts of ways, it's a time of testing, it's a time of challenge for Israel to see if they are able to remain faithful to God and the covenant God has invited them into. So that just kind of gives you a little bit of a background of where we're at. And I want to just pause here and pray and ask that you pray with me before we take a look at this last portion of the book of Exodus. Let's pray together. Father God, I don't pretend to know what is going on in the lives of all of us here this morning, but I'm sure... There's a fair amount of us going through challenges ourselves. Our life feels a bit like wilderness. God, I don't think it's any mistake you have brought us here today. 
to worship you in song, to worship you through our financial offerings and gifts, to worship you through prayer, and to worship you through your word. God, you have brought us here because you have something to say to us. And you will speak to us through your Holy Spirit if we have the ears to listen, and I pray that we would. We'd hear what you have to say. Our sauce will be heart. Our, our hearts will be soft towards you to receive what you have to say. And God, you would ready our hands and our feet to take what you have shown us and live it out in our everyday lives starting today. This is what we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm betting everybody here probably could raise their hand to this question. Have you ever been betrayed? Depending on the betrayal, kind of depends on your response, right? could be something small, minor. You may not even want to use the word betrayal. But some have experienced a very deep betrayal in your life. Uh, a violation of trust might, might be along the lines of friends or family or someone in authority over you that you trusted. But chances are most of us have had some experience with betrayal, And if you can think about that experience you've had, I would almost guarantee that along with that experience comes anger, if not rage, depending on the kind of betrayal you experienced in your life. Uh, When you think about that feeling, and I don't mean to drudge up bad stuff from the past, but I just want you to get a picture here of something that God must be feeling in this story. God, it should come to no surprise to us that because we have feelings, God would have feelings. Because we, the Bible tells us right out of Genesis, humanity, me and you, we are made in the image of God. So there is something of God in us, implanted in us. The image bearers of God, there's something about us that resembles our maker. Where do we get those intense feelings from? Whether it's joy or sadness or anger. Where do we get those things from? We get them from God. I'm not saying they're all accurate. I'm not saying they all lead to good choices. I'm just saying the very fact that we can feel comes from God because God is a feeling God. I set this story up that way because I want you to understand as we get into this, I want you to be thinking, what must it have been like to be God? He has saved these people out of slavery. They called out to him, help me. He does help them. He brings them out into wilderness. He provides for them. He takes care of them. He protects them all the way through. And he says, I'm not going to make you guess at what I expect of you. I'm going to just tell you. Here's my commands. We heard a few weeks ago, uh, Brother Kevin Meilenberg, our director of missions, walked through the Ten Commandments with you. Those weren't the only commands. If you've been reading along, you know there's a lot of other commands that we went through so far in the book of Exodus. But the Ten Commandments, at least, they stood out, right? And here we have God's people violating the first two commandments. First command is have no other gods before me. The second command is do not create an idol out of anything. So the story goes, Moses is up on the mountain... Sinai, he is with God. He is receiving these commandments and they're being written down on tablets of stone, front and back. These 
these uh, commands, these laws that God is giving Moses to direct God's people, to help shape and form them into the people God wants them to be, as we talked about last week. And as he's doing that, which is an incredibly gracious act, that God would tell us what he wants from us. One of the most frustrating things in the world is to know somebody wants something from me, and I don't know what it is. Probably because I wasn't listening. I know my wife's thinking that right now. That's probably true. But it can be a very frustrating thing. God doesn't make us do that. He doesn't make us wonder. He says, no, 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 here it is. Here's what I expect. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to even put it down in writing. And here they are on the mountain, the finger of God writing these commands, these laws on the front and back of these two tablets. And yet God knows as that's happening, his people whom he saved and provided for are down at the foot of the mountain doing what? Worshiping another idol. Now, what does it say? It says, you know, this fellow Moses, he went up there. We don't know if he's coming back. He's up there 40 days, 40 nights. That's a long ways. That's a long time. If your better half says, I'm going out for milk, and they're gone for 40 days and 40 nights, you'd probably be a little concerned. Well, some of you, maybe. So they wonder, where's he at? Who's going to intercede? How are we going to follow God? How are we going to worship God? Our leader's gone. They revert back to what they knew in the time of crisis. That's not unlike us, is it? When we are really anxious, really worried, really upset, we revert back to our worst version of ourselves. They reverted back to the worst version of themselves that allowed other gods to enter into their life. This golden calf, that's not the first time they've ever seen a golden calf. They they knew that from, from being in slavery in Egypt, being around other gods. They had experienced that and most likely had worshipped that golden calf at some point in their history, in, in their life, and they just went back right to it. Now, the story's a little confusing because it almost reads like they were worshipping the golden calf as a representation of their God whom is meeting with Moses right now. That's very possible. In that case, they would not necessarily be violating the first of the Ten Commandments, but they were still certainly violating the second commandment, don't make an idol, don't make an image out of anything. Either way, they make a colossal mistake. They do not trust God in this moment of uncertainty in their life. We've all been there, those moments of uncertainty. What will you do? Will you trust God? When life is uncertain. And they did not. And so the story goes. Moses is number two. They, they get Aaron involved in this. We, we want a golden calf. Or we want something to worship. Make us a golden calf. They do all this. They make the golden calf. They worship the golden calf. Uh, as if that were not enough. We read at the end of verse six. That when they're done worshiping. They indulge in revelry. Now, that would have been uh, most likely some kind of sexual sin being wrapped up in this because that's what they would do. They would, part of the pagan worship was not just to worship and make sacrifices, but often uh, sexual sin was involved in that. I won't get into the details, but you can study up on it yourself. But it was certainly a part of it, and that's what they do. So now they're violating more of the Ten Commandments. What may have started out as an understanding kind of situation, they don't know what to expect, we got to do something. And they moved into idol worship, creating an idol, and now they're engaged in sin in a very deep level. And God has this conversation 
with, Ab- with uh, Moses and says, look, it's over. These people aren't getting the message. They've been complaining ever since. Did you know that they complain? They said it was better for us in Egypt. We should go back into slavery. At least we had good food. That's really what they said. Seriously. We had better food back in Egypt in slavery than out here in the desert. We'd rather have good food than be in the wilderness. That sounds like an American to me. I don't know. That's kind of, you know, I'm saying. And what does Moses do? It's kind of an amazing thing. Moses is standing here. He's representing the people to God. And his task is then to take these commandments and represent God to the people. That's the job of a priest. Moses is acting as a priest here. And so he's going up to receive a word from God. To bring that word back to God's people. And now he finds himself needing to represent the people to God. And to plead with God. Now, understand, God is not going back on his covenant here. His covenant agreement with Abraham going on down the line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who becomes known as Israel, all the way down. He's not saying we're doing away with that covenant. He says we're just going to do away with these people. It's these people I can't take. The covenant will stand and I'll do it through you, Moses. Now, Moses has already had a headache with these people. We know that. You've read the story. He's already had to deal with these people and, and they're his people. There is flesh and blood, but my goodness, how many times I'm sure he banged his head on a tent pole dealing with these folks. And here's his chance. I thought about this. It's like, man, Moses, this is your chance. You're like, yeah, God, they stink. Tell me about it. I got to live with these people. Let's just get rid of them. We'll start over. Just me and you. This sounds like a great plan. But see, Moses loved his people more than he loved himself. As much of a headache as they cause in his life. They were his people and he loved them. And he basically says three things and then a fourth. The first thing he says, don't forget what you've already done to save them. You've gone through all this effort to bring them out of Egypt. Bring them out of slavery. Don't forget about that. He says, don't forget your enemies are watching. What are they going to think of you, God? That's the second thing he says. And the third thing he says is don't forget you made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Israel, which again is Jacob. He goes back down the mountain. Out of anger and frustration, he throws the tablets down. They shatter. He sees their sin firsthand. He talks to his his, his, uh, relative Aaron about it. And Aaron says, yeah, I I don't know what happened. We We put gold in the fire and out jumped a calf. So what's he doing? He's He's playing dumb. I don't know. I didn't do anything. It was kind of not my fault. It was just kind of a miraculous thing that happened. Of course, uh, I doubt Moses bought that. Moses goes back up to meet with God yet again. And in Exodus 32, 31 through 32, he, he talks to the Lord and he says, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves... Gods of gold. He doesn't sugarcoat what they've done. He doesn't downplay it like Aaron. He says this is a great sin. But in verse 32 he says, But now please forgive their sin. 
And he says a pretty incredible thing. But if not, then blot me out of your book that you have written. Take me out of the promise. We're in it together, is what he says. We're all in this together. What I want you to think about is the anger that God displayed. Sometimes it's hard to think about that. Sometimes we'd rather not. Let's be honest. We, we would much prefer to think about the loving side of God. And to be truthful, that is God's nature. The Bible in the New Testament, uh, in John, uh, the, uh, one of the letters that John wrote, he said, God is love. That is his very nature. We are not downplaying the love of God. We're actually going to talk about that in just a minute. But anyone who has ever loved anyone knows love and anger often go hand in hand. If you love someone and see them destroying their lives, what do you feel? A lot of things, but I bet anger is one of them. Why? Because you love. Why are you angry? Because you love so much. And if God is a perfect God who loves perfectly, then he would feel more anger than anyone when he sees those he loves act out in ways that are detrimental to them. God also rightly loves himself. Loves his own glory, as he should. Did you know that you're supposed to love yourself too, by the way? When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, means you've got to love yourself appropriately. God loves himself appropriately, and they've sinned against him as well. Their sin is damaging them, their sin is against him, and both those things together are creating in him anger. And there is such a thing as righteous anger and God is feeling it. And I think that that's important for us to know. One of the reasons I think it's important for us to know is because sometimes we think our sin is really not that big of a deal. Surely our sin compared to their sin doesn't really show up on God's radar. And I just want you to understand, if you think your sin is not a big deal to God, what you're saying is you are not a big deal to God. That's what you're saying. Because anger and love go hand in hand. So if God is not angry at your sin, it means he does not care about you. But the fact is, he does. He does care about you. He does love you. You do matter to him. Therefore, when you sin, he's not happy about it. Because he knows what it does to you. And he knows also because he rightfully loves himself. He knows the message it sends about him. That he is not worthy of our best efforts to obey. So Moses goes back to the mountain and says, God, it's, we're all in this together. I'm asking you to forgive them. And God finds a way to do this. I want to jump ahead a little bit to Exodus 34. Listen to God describing himself to Moses. He says, this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Yes, he gets angry, but he is slow to anger. He is patient, right? He's abounding in love. Again, this is God describing himself. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But then he says something very important here. 
All of that needs to be in place in our understanding of God, that this is who God is. And yet, he ends this little portion here, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So the story in Exodus, backing up to Exodus 32, the story in this chapter ends like this. uh, Moses says, you know, just, I'm with them. If you're going to take them out, take me out too. You're either going to forgive all of us or, or none of us, but I, I can't. I can't just you know forget about them. Blot me out of the book if you find that you cannot forgive them. This is what the Lord said in Exodus thirty-two, thirty-three. The Lord replied to Moses, "Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go and lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you." However. When the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf that Aaron made. Now that can be troubling to us. You may have read that this week and thought, man, this is, this is tough. I'm not sure what to make of it. We've got a loving God who's slow to anger. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. And yet he still is punishing wickedness. And I think there is... A very simple way to understand this, and you could go about it in two different ways. One, if you think of parenthood. Any parent who solely shows love to their child, and yet that love never crosses over into discipline, how will that child turn out? You don't want to work with that child. You don't want to have them in your classroom. You don't want them to be your employee. You don't want them to be your boss. Anyone who's never experienced godly discipline from a parent is going to be... A wrecking ball. No restraint of the self is not a good thing. Right? So we understand that in the realm of parenting. A parent has to have love that is soft and kind and patient. And love also that expresses itself in discipline. Right? We would want the same thing in our judicial system. You want a judge that understands humanity and has some compassion for him. And yet, at the same time, you want a judge who is going to judge justly. To punish that which is wrong and the appropriate level. To not have that would to not have a good judge. This is no different with God. We, if we really thought about it, we would say, yes, I want a God who's loving, but I want a God who's just. I want a God who's kind and compassionate, but I want a God who is able and willing to punish wickedness. Let me tell you something. If you've ever seen true wickedness, you want punishment for wickedness. If you've ever seen the ugliness, the depths of depravity that humanity can reach, if you've ever even had a taste of that, you know that there is something in you that says there should be justice here and there's not. And what do you feel when there should be justice and there's not? You feel what God feels. Anger. What's God going to do? God finds a way to be a covenant-keeping God who forgives and loves and yet is also a just God who punishes wickedness. And in that way, I think even in our own human understanding, we can begin to understand that, that in this way God is perfect. He is one who is all loving and yet he is completely just. The hard thing though 
is when God's justice is turned towards us. And in that moment, what do we want? We want the soft side of God, if we can put it that way. We want the lenient God. We want the slow to anger and patient and abounding and love God. We don't want the justice God. We don't want the uh, God who uh, punishes wickedness. We want a little grace. It's hard to put these things together. Because I totally understand where God's coming from. This is, this is merely one snapshot that we have just looked at. In Israel's disobedience. From the very beginning, Israel is complaining and griping. From the very beginning, Israel is disobedient. It carries through. In fact, uh, the Israelites are about to be able to enter into the promised land. You probably know this story. We're not reading through numbers, so we're not going to cover it. So I'll tell it to you, though you, you may know it. They send spies into the promised land because they want to scope the place out. They send in 12 spies, one from each tribe of Israel. They go in, they check it out, and they come back and say, Look, what God said was no lie. This place is flowing milk and honey. This is an amazing place. The grapes are as big as your head. You wouldn't believe it. It's beautiful. Two of them said, we need to go in, Caleb, Joshua, we need to go in and take the land. God has promised it to us. It's our land. We call it the promised land. Come on, guys. The other ten say, uh, no, those guys are big. They got muscles on muscles. They're scary looking. They're ten feet tall. I mean, let's just, let's forget about it. Let's not go in. Let's not worry about it. Let's stay where we're at. So they have this disagreement in the camp, but the consensus is, by the majority, it's too risky. We read this in Numbers 14. If, oh, this, is, this is the majority speaking. Listen to what they say. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And, the, and, the, and they said to one another, we should choose a leader and just go back. Now, what does God do in this moment? The Lord replies, the punishment uh, is marked by grace, but it was severe. And the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, I've forgiven them as you've asked. Moses intercedes again. Lord, forgive them for what they're saying. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of God fills the whole earth, not one of these who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. I just think, yeah, we are like God. How many times have you said to your kid, I've told you ten times. That's what God says. You've tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the promised land. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So you have the grace of God to forgive them, and yet you have the justice of God to say, but all of you who have disobeyed, you're not making it in. You may know that part of the story. The whole generation that wandered in the desert, 20 years and up, not making it in. A whole new generation of Israel will be the ones to take the land. But not this generation. They are going to be disciplined by God. Even Moses doesn't make it in. There's a point in the story where God tells Moses, 
Uh, the people are complaining about water again. God tells Moses, go speak to the rock. It's a miraculous thing. Just speak to that rock. That rock will open up, pour water out. And Moses doesn't speak to the rock as God directed him. He hits the rock with a staff. Water still comes out, but he did not trust God's word. And he therefore did not make it into the promised land either. So nobody's making it in. Now, except for the two spies, Caleb and Joshua, who gave the report accurately, but said we should go in because God has given us the land. Nobody else is making it, right? There is this tension in these stories between God's grace and God's justice. And sometimes it looks like God is leaning into his grace more so than justice. He's forgiving them. He's letting some of them go in at least. And yet God is still maintaining his justice as he punishes them. When Moses first came back after the stone tablets uh, were given to him and they were broken, he went back up and came back down, you remember? God strikes them with a plague. But they don't all die like his original comment to Moses was. You have this tension here and it's hard to kind of sort it out, I think, until we see it on clear display in the New Testament. Everything that's happening in the Old Testament is preparatory for the New Testament. The language of Scripture is a shadow of what is to come. Talked about this last time. It's a foreshadowing like in a story. You see something in a movie and you know later on that part of the story is going to become important later on. And then you see it come to fruition. Everything that's happening in the Old Testament is hints towards the fulfillment of of God's covenant in the New Testament. In fact, it's so radically new and different that it builds upon those old covenants and, it, and God enters into a new covenant. Not, not that the old covenants didn't matter. It's just that it's building on those old covenants and is bringing it to a new covenant. In, this, in the new covenant, we see the grace of God and the justice of God coming together. The writer of Hebrews says this, that the covenant of which Jesus is mediator, is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is built on a better promise. What is the promise? Continuing in Hebrews, the writer says, This is the promise. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our consciousness from the acts that lead to death, that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is a mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Remember what God said, I am going to punish their sins. I'm going to do it. I may not do it to my full extent here and now. He did not. God did not punish Israel's wickedness to the full extent that they deserved then and there. But he makes this promise, but I will. And I believe you see that taking place in the new covenant. God fully takes out his wrath against Israel. But it's not falling on them. This is the story of the new covenant. Of which Jesus is mediator. 
This is bringing together the love of God, which is complete, and the justice of God, which is also complete in Him. And this new covenant, which we often call the gospel or the good news, is that God does punish perfectly. His justice is meted out in, in, in full force. No one could ever look at God and say, you're not just because you don't punish wickedness, because He did. His full punishment for wickedness, however, did not fall on Israel or on us. The full force of His justice lands on Himself. He takes the punishment. He says, you deserve it, but I'll take it. This should be you on the cross, but it will be me. That's the new covenant. That is the grace of God and the justice of God meeting together in the most perfect and wonderful way. And that is the promise that you and I have. He says, whoever is called. Who's called? Who's called? Whoever God calls. And I believe God calls every one of us. And therefore, the called are those who answer the call. If you answer the call, you're the called. You're part of that new covenant. That though you sin, you are forgiven. Though you will make a mistake today and tomorrow and repeat it the next day, kind of like the Israelites, God will be patient with you. He will love you. He will forgive you. He has made for you an eternal home and you can't mess any of that stuff up. You're adopted into his family. You're a son or daughter. And there is nothing you can do to change that. Once you are in by faith in Jesus, you are in. And the perfect justice and the perfect love of God is there on full display as the new covenant is being mediated to us. A new way of relating to God is being formed and shaped in us, being made available to us. Through the cross. Now here is the question. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do. As recipients of this. New covenant. Well I'm assuming. One thing that I should back up and say. You may not be a recipient. Maybe you haven't made that decision. Maybe you haven't come to that place where you realize, yeah, God has a right to be upset with me. I haven't always honored him. I can go days and not even think about him. I don't talk to him. I don't, you know, listen to him through the scriptures. I, like the Israelites, I know what he expects. I know some of these, at least some of these commands of what to do and what, what not to do. And even if I try, I seem to fail. You may know that you deserve the justice, the wrath of God, but do you know that you have the grace of God offered to you? And you don't have to earn it. It is a gift given to you. God calls you up and says, do you want it? And if you take the call and say yes, then you are the called. Are you the called? Have you received that? I remember receiving that at 16 years old. Sitting at my desk in my room reading the bible for the first time myself and coming to an understanding all this stuff i heard at church is true god is real he does love me but i am a sinner and i do need a savior because i've been in church i knew what to do and i just pray say god forgive me i i'm blowing it here i need your grace i need jesus 
And I firmly believe that at that moment, at 16, I became a Christian. So do you have that? Are you part of that new covenant, that new arrangement with you and God, that your punishment for your sin is taken out on Jesus? You're forgiven and made right with him. Do you have that? The Bible says you can receive it by faith. Grace is received by faith, simply believing that, yes, Jesus is real. He did that for me, and, it, and, I, and I can have that. He's done it for me. I can receive that. To just trust that begins in you a new life with God, an eternal life that never ends, with heaven as your home. It's an incredible thing. What are we going to do, though, if we've already received that? Can I encourage you this morning? Let us learn from the Israelites. Let us not keep making those mistakes. Let us do everything we can to live a holy life that God has called us into. Not to earn God's favor, but because we're so grateful that God has earned it for us in Jesus on the cross. He paid a very high price for for me to be forgiven. It was no small thing for God to forgive me and you. Nothing less than the blood of His Son Jesus who was God and is God himself. Nothing less than that can make me right with God or you. Therefore, though I know I'm going to sin today and tomorrow, I don't want to. Even though I know I'm I'm weak, I know that in him I'm strong. I know I want to walk with him. I know I want to please him with my life. Are there some areas, though, where you are finding it incredibly difficult? Maybe you've even given up hope to receive freedom in that area of your life, but you want to live a holy life before a just God. I just want to say to you this morning, don't put the pressure on yourself to be perfect. Jesus did that for you. Let the fact that he loved you so much that he sent Jesus move you into new levels of obedience. Let his love for you move you into new levels of obedience. But for some of you this morning, maybe it just starts with that simple confession, I am struggling here. will be an invitation in a moment. We'll have some of our deacons down front. You can come and pray with them. Maybe somebody next to you you can talk to. Maybe somebody you know that you know and trust, you love them, and you know if you reach out to them, they're going to hear you out. But you just need to get some stuff off your chest. Right? There's some things going on in your life that you know is not pleasing to God. And He loves you so much. and, 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 And you don't want to live that way anymore. Let me just encourage you, find someone you can talk to about that. Not in order to put a smile on God's face, not in order to make him happy with you, not in order to, you know, uh, make sure he's not angry with you anymore. No, because you know he already loves you. If I know that someone loves me no matter what, and I feel their love, I can go to them and admit that I messed up. That's the story of the prodigal son. If you've ever read it, go read it. Luke 15. It will tell you that story. That is our father who has his arms open to us. So however the Lord has spoken to you this morning, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to him. But let's close this time in prayer as we prepare our hearts to do that. Father God, thank you for these hard stories in the scriptures. It's not always easy for us to make sense of all of it. Sometimes it paints a picture of you that seems uh, unpleasant, to say the least. But, but I know, God, that when you're angry, it's because you love. And, God, you've shown us most clearly what love looks like when you sent your son Jesus into this world to die on the cross for us. And, 
Father God, I pray that each and every one of us would have assurance that we have trusted that Christ has done just that. And because he died the death we should have died, we have a life eternal that we can never lose. I pray everyone here would have that assurance. And for those of us who are struggling with sin, God, that you would bring us deliverance, not out of our own effort, but out of our weakness to confess it to you, to others. We would have the strength to do it by your grace, knowing that you love us. And we will never lose that love that you have for us in Christ. And I know you're speaking to our hearts about these things. I pray that now we would take time to respond to you in prayer, whatever that might look like. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me for our invitation song. And again, if you need prayer,